son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, when we see supernatural uh, or natural events, do you ever kind of think maybe the cause was supernatural? If you do, you are not alone. A lot of people still turn to supernatural explanations when they see a phenomenon, something that, well they need an explanation for. Joining us to talk more about this is Joshua Conrad Jackson, Assistant Professor of Behavioral Science at the University of Chicago. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Is it kind of a throwback that people maybe still believe in supernatural causes if we go back to kind of uh, religious, mythical beliefs that that were maybe a, a normal part of human culture? I mean, we've been explaining um, phenomena in the world for, for thousands of years using supernatural principles. Uh, we're still doing it. Um, and until we did this research, there wasn't really a lot of consensus about what people apply supernatural principles to explain. So you'd seen supernatural principles explained, uh, used to explain why leaders change in power in ancient China, uh, used to explain storms and floods in ancient Sumeria. Um, but yeah, I mean, supernatural explanations have been, been with us since the beginning of humankind. And you talk about the research that you've done. Have you found that it's changing, though, that people, while there are still some supernatural explanations, people also would perhaps want to look for scientific explanations or, or other reasons for for what they're seeing? Well, um, the research we did was in small-scale societies. We looked through ethnographies that had been compiled by travelers and anthropologists over hundreds of years, uh, over a hundred societies. And what we could do is we could look at what people explained using supernatural principles and how this changed as societies began to scale up and get bigger. What we found is that uh, supernatural explanations of things that happen out in nature, like storms or disease, were essentially universal in over 90% of the societies we looked at. But as Societies start getting bigger, turn into cities. Uh, then we begin to use religion more and more to uh, explain social things that people are doing. And we think that God is watching us in our social events and, and might control things like generosity or uh, warfare. Um, and, and these beliefs, they have gone away a little bit with science. Uh, but from other research, we still see that people hold conspiracy theories. People think that you know, God is responsible for, for the climate and the weather. Uh, and so they're still very persistent in modern society. And you talked about kind of the difference in, in the size of communities or the, the size of population. Do you, do you see a difference then, or did the research look at, say, different uh, areas, different parts of the world, or if, if an area is, is more likely to be or, or have a bigger uh, concentration of people who identify as very religious, having a different outcome? You know, that's a really interesting question. Uh, the societies we were surveying, over 100% of them, they were all religious. And, and humans have been religious, almost all of us, throughout history. It's only very recently that you start to see secularization. Um, 
one of the really interesting findings and the unexpected findings from this research to us was actually how consistent supernatural explanations were. For example, in all world regions, people had supernatural explanations of why people get sick. Over 90% of societies, actually 96% of societies around the world, uh, believed that gods or spirits were in play when someone would fall ill. Uh, And that's throughout long periods of time, all the way from the 1500s to the 1900s. Hmm. That seems like such a high percentage, or I guess looking at it through more of a science eye, it does seem like a big percentage of people that that would think that. Well, these are percentages of societies. And so there are people in these societies who might not have these beliefs. But the way that we did this research is we said, you know, you go into a traditional community, for example, the Ainu people, which is an indigenous group in Japan, and is there at least a normative belief that when people get sick, it's because of gods and spirits. It's not every single 96% of the people in that community believe that. Right. Uh, did you find them with your research as well? Again, is it, is it changing or, or are you seeing a shift at all when we look at disease, if we look at natural disasters? Is there any shift at all in how people are looking or trying to explain these things? Well, our study was uh, designed to look at ethnographies, and so this is often before science has become really well established. But some other work by a psychologist named Christine Lickner, who's at UC Austin, has found that when groups, when tradition, indigenous societies come into contact with scientific explanations for things like disease or the weather, often they'll actually complement supernatural explanations with those scientific explanations rather than replace them. Um, it's only really in Uh, large Western societies, like the kinds of countries that you and I live in, that we've actually replaced a lot of our supernatural explanations with scientific ones. Right. So in some scenarios, then, there could be mass flooding. And even though you could look at the science of why it was flooding, there would still be a belief that, yes, it was caused by this, but there was also a supernatural supernatural, uh, component to it? Exactly. There's actually a really interesting study that came out a few years ago, uh, which found that, you know, when you present... Christians from the United States with a scenario where a family is out at a picnic and there's a flood, terrible flood that comes along and they die. Uh, people are likely to say that that flood was caused by a higher power when there's no information presented about you know why it may have arisen. But if you say that it was a dam worker who made a mistake when they were on the job, then people don't think that a higher power is responsible. So even today in you know contemporary Christians living in the States, you see people attributing supernatural explanations to natural events that are hard to explain. Well, it's very interesting uh, research and taking a look at uh, how things have changed and people looking at those explanations. Uh, Joshua, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for finding the research interesting. Have a great day. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Hello. Good morning. Well, let's talk about the likelihood that the Bank of Canada is going to increase interest rates rather than keep its key rate at 4.5%. What do you think? Uh, It really depends on who you ask, and that is the big question on most people's minds. You know, will they or won't they? Um, If you look at what a lot of, when they call it smart money, so investors in these overnight swaps, uh, they pay it at a 50-50 chance that the Bank of Canada will hike, will increase rates today. Um, that also means, you know, 50% chance that they won't. Um, if you look at, though, what most Bay Street economists are thinking, and they have a much better track record of predicting this, uh, they are calling for another pause, so status quo. But they're saying, look out for the statement, because it's going to have this wording in there that's going to tell people to prepare for probably a small hike in July. 
Um, and if you look at what investors are thinking in terms of the likelihood of a rate increase in July, that number goes up to 70%, so a, a much higher probability of that than today. Right. And like you said, really depending on who you ask and uh, and that response. But when talking about July, I suppose we're waiting then to see what happens today and then kind of the focus on predicting or at least trying to predict what the rest of the summer is going to look like. Yeah, that's right. So we'll have to wait until 10 a.m. Eastern for that uh, statement. There's not going to be a press conference, which sometimes there is. Um, and what that means is that uh, all the forecasters are going to be really glomming onto that statement, going over every single word, trying to pick out what clues are available in there. Uh, what we know in terms of the data that we've been collecting and seeing over the last few months and weeks is that we have a Canadian economy that is showing some signs of being overheated. Uh, we have inflation that ticked higher in April. We have a job market that is really tight um, Surprisingly so, GDP figures are strong, consumer spending is strong, and that means even though poll after poll shows that people are very much you know, afraid or fearful of a recession coming, they're still going out to spend their money. Um, and yeah, so we'll have to wait and see. If you recall, around you know earlier this year and, and even into last year, most economists thought we would be into some kind of economic downturn or even a recession at this point in time. That hasn't shown up in the data, at least not yet. Um, so what we could see is the return of, of hikes, maybe something in the neighborhood of 25 basis points, likely July 12th, when the Bank of Canada makes its next announcement. Um, what we know is that inflation, the latest snapshot shows it was at 4.4% in April, and the Bank of Canada wants to get it down to its target of you know, closer to 2%, uh, and we have a long way to go. And even looking at other countries that are dealing with a lot of the same things, when you talk about inflation, certainly some items, like people will know that some items have come down in price a little bit, but still seeing, I think, what is the term, sticky inflation? Some things are staying up there, and I guess that's having a big impact as well on, on how things look and what the Bank of Canada does as far as its next move. Yeah, I, I would say that inflation overall has been uh, very sticky, and that's, you know, uh, a term that even economists have been using, it's persistent uh, in a way that maybe the Bank of Canada was uh, surprised by. There are some people who say, you know, in hindsight, maybe the Bank of Canada could have started to increase rates a little bit earlier than it did. Certainly investors wanted that, um, but the time machine's broken. And it looks like, I mean, a rate hike is on the table for today, but many people, many forecasters believe that it's likely going to be punted to July. Well, we'll have to uh, look to uh, the summer. Not something, I suppose, uh, that people will looking are looking forward to, if that is what happens uh, in uh, July, certainly. Uh, but, Anne, anything else we need to be looking out for today, do you think, as far as uh, what the Bank of Canada does or what that move means uh, for perhaps other moves we might see in the near future? Well, technically, so the next time the Bank of Canada is set to make an announcement will be in early September. And, I mean, technically, that is still part of summer, so... Some of the economists I've been chatting with are saying we could see, you know, a, a small rate hike in July and perhaps followed by another one in September. It really depends on what the next set of data uh, tells us about how the economy is performing. And I'm talking about the jobs market. I'm talking about obviously that inflation read, but also GDP, which tells us how the economy is doing. But um, yeah, I, I guess to kind of summarize, expect rate hikes this summer unless the data changes dramatically and there are signs that, you know, the 
the economy is is suddenly turning around and, and really slowing down in a big, meaningful way, along with inflation. Um, but the, the, the point of perhaps the bank not hiking this time around would be to give people ample time, all those households that are impacted by variable rate debt, time to get their finances in order to wrap their mind around, okay, what does that mean for me if the bank is going to hike maybe once, maybe a couple more times over the course of the summer? All right. And Gaviola, thank you so much for this. Great to talk to you. You bet. This is Mornings with Simi. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, a wildfire has forced the closure of Highway 4. That is the key highway connecting Port Alberni as well as the coastal communities of Tofino and Euclid to the rest of Vancouver Island. That fire has now also prompted the Alberni Clairquat Regional District to open its emergency operations centre. And the road closure started yesterday afternoon. That was in response to the Cameron Bluffs fire. And as of yesterday afternoon, it had grown to about 80 hectares in size. Joining us to talk more about what this means for Port Alberni is the mayor of Port Alberni, Sherry Minions. Sherry, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, thank you for doing this. And uh, Mayor, how are things going today as, as of this morning? What is the situation there? Yeah, so we are, we're still waiting on our morning update from BC Wildfire on basically how the fire is progressing. Um, we do know that they worked on it throughout the night um, and we're hopeful for some kind of positive progress, although we knew, do know that it was um, difficult conditions last night. And we've kind of anecdotally seen some pictures of um, that people have posted of, of what looks like, um, you know, a decent amount of growth in the fire. So hopefully there's some good news there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's there's a lot of concern in the community for sure. It's, this is our our one kind of highway in and out of the community, um, not just to the city of Port Alberni, but of course the whole Alberni Valley and then the West Coast, Euclid, Tofino and, and several small Indigenous communities as well, um, you know, rely on this road to, to get in, to get out and, and of course for our supplies as well. Right. So what are you telling residents at this point as far as the highway closure and, and how long that might be in place? Yeah, so we're, we're trying to provide just all the information that we get from BC Wildfire and the Ministry of Transportation to our residents. Um, but of course, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information as we just don't know um, when this fire will be under control. So we, we do know that the Ministry of Transportation has stated that they are working on alternative route options. Um, there are other ways in and out of the community, and um, they're, of course, just not ideal for you know mass amounts of people to travel by any means. Um, but we do know that the ministry is working on kind of a backup of safe way to move people in and out um, kind of in a more guided way than, 
people are, are taking back roads right now without, um, you know, without probably a lot of markings and stuff like that. So um, whether that's just as a backup in case it goes, you know, a little bit longer or as an expectation because they feel it's going to be closed a bit longer, we don't know yet. But um, we're, we're asking people really to just obviously stay out of the area and, um, and try to make sure they're planning to not need to leave the community until this fire is out of control under control. Right. And when you talk about the the other routes, I know there are, there are people with four-wheel drive and such that are pretty good at navigating forestry roads. That's certainly not for everybody. But no. is, it, is it the forestry roads or are there other roads kind of more established, but roads obviously not as much as the highway, but more established yeah. pathways that could no, be used? It, it, is the, it is the forestry roads. So, um, you know, and some of them are in, are in okay shape. Um, you know, the, there's a, a route um, from Port Alberni to Banfield that has been a big topic of attention over the last few years that the um, province has invested quite a bit of money in already and there's more work to be done. From that road, you are able to um, head to kind of the Cowichan area. So that's a long detour um, and not the best road by any means, but it, it certainly is drivable. And um, the challenge is it really is only a route for people who know it um, and it's a route for people who are comfortable on that type of road. And, and we certainly don't want people, you know, just any person kind of driving that because it is they, those are active logging roads still. So um, when the ministry talks about setting up alternatives, we you know expect that they're they're looking at um, not. I mean, we know the roads exist, but they're looking at um, you know directing people and um, and making sure that those roads can be passed as safely as possible in the short term. You mentioned supplies as well, and is that something that's being looked at as far as other ways, depending on how long uh, getting supplies in and out, uh, depending on how yeah. long this happens. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something, um, you know, we're well aware of um, of this, this risk. Um, it's something our community has talked about for a long time, and we've been really fortunate to never have this um, happen until now. But it is something that we've been planning for. So, um, you know, whether it was concern about, you know, an earthquake or um, a fire like this or whatever else, we did know that this was a real risk to our community. And so, um, you know, we have alternatives um set up in terms of lines of communication to be able to work with um, the province and and others to make sure that we are getting the supplies to our community that we need if it's sustained. So um, our our community emergency preparedness is led by the regional district, so the Alberta Clayquot Regional District. And over the last three years, they have majorly um, stepped up their focus on emergency preparedness um, so we've, the good thing is we've done a lot of this work, we've done a lot of the planning, and we do feel very prepared at a community level um, and certainly a local government level to take this on. But um, obviously the most important thing to us right now is that um, we just make as much space as possible for BC Wildfire to do the work that they need to do and, and get that fire out as soon as possible. And, and we understand, too, that it's pretty steep terrain, and that's yes. part of the issue of fighting this fire. How would you kind of describe where the fire is burning? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a mountain on the side of a lake. <laughs> so, um, you know, Cameron Lake um, is, our, our highway goes right around the edge of Cameron Lake. It's a beautiful drive. Um, and right on the other side of the road is quite a steep mountain um, all the way up. So uh, I went through yesterday. I um, I went had to go to Nanaimo in the morning, and I was there was no travel advisory or anything. I was quite surprised um, when I went through that they were letting people through because the flames were right down at the highway at that point, albeit not a lot, uh, a large amount of flames, but um, enough that I thought, wow, should we be driving through here? 
um, and ended up coming back. Um, so I think the situation, you know, grew quicker than expected. Um, and then the ministry and, and BC Wildfire have been just trying to manage it. So it is challenging. I mean, we all know about the difficulties of um, how forest fires grow, you know, this time of year, certainly, but in um, challenging kind of mountainous terrain as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a tough one for sure. And, and just hoping that they're able to get it under control as soon as possible. Uh, mentioned as well that the district has set up an emergency reception centre uh, for people who maybe are stranded. Do you anticipate, will there be a lot of people that need to access that? Yeah, for sure. So last night, um, so this is another thing that um, the regional district does very well here, and, and we've activated our emergency reception centre several times for a variety of different reasons in the community. Um, they, you know, very quickly jumped to setting that up, um, our staff and volunteers, um, took care of that overnight. We did have um, about 130 people who um, either dropped into that centre or ended up staying the night. Um, we have one of our community groups providing breakfast this morning. Um, I do know I was told that there was a, um, a high school team of some sort from Nanaimo that um, ended up stuck here as a result, result of the road closure. So that was about, um, we were told, about 50 people who ended up um, sleeping overnight at the high school. So, you know, lots of um, community effort just to make sure that everyone who is stuck is not, you know, nobody's ending up sleeping in cars or anything like that. Um, we know that obviously a lot of people opt to go to hotels in situations like this, and we've been told that um, the hotels are quite full, uh, if not completely full. So um, there are a lot of people who are stuck um, as a result of this, and we're just really trying to make sure that nobody, um, you know, if you're stuck, that's fine, but trying to make sure that nobody ends up um, without somewhere to be. So um, about 130 people accessed that last night. All right. And any, uh, do, do we, the cause of the fire, human caused, or is that being investigated as well? And how concerning is that? Yeah, it's being reported as human caused. We don't have any further information on that at this time. But, you know, I think we all know that most wildfires are human caused to some extent. And um, there's always talk in our community because Port Alberni is a community that, um, you know, loves the outdoors and loves our trails and loves our backcountry. And, um, you know, it, and we don't always have free access to it, which is a bit of a, a sore point for, for our community as a result of just some of the ownership of those lands. Um, but, you know, times like this, it, it is, it's hard to, um, yeah, to kind of think about, you know, that being caused. Um, we don't know exactly why, but, you know, usually when it's human caused, it is as a result of um, people not, you know, taking care of the lands as they need to. So this is a, a major concern for our community. And, um, you know, I, it was just it was just a month or so ago, our, our community's whole water source was taken out by a, a logging truck. And, and now we're uh, now our, our uh, road in and out is, is taken out by wildfire. So it's been a, uh, a tough couple of months for us. But um, we are used to getting through things like this. We're a strong town. I'm sure we'll be fine. Um, but, yeah, it is, it, it's tough to, to hear that something like this was human-caused and, then, um, and, you know, now be dealing with kind of the impacts of it for such a massive amount of people on the West Coast. All right. Mayor Sherry Minions, thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi.
We have been talking a lot about drug policy in this province, decriminalization, what's working, what isn't working. We also heard from our provincial health officer as well as other officials earlier this week talking about safe supply and the potential for expanding safe supply in this province. Some of the concerns there as well are safe supply drugs being sold or being traded for other drugs, other more effective drugs in some cases. And what else could potentially help ease the overdose crisis? Well, my next guest is here to talk more about decriminalization and why that is not working on its own. Samuel Tobias is a doctoral student at UBC's School of Population and Public Health, also research assistant at BC's Centre on Substance Use. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. When we look at decriminalization and the policy that we've seen in Vancouver, in BC, what do you think some of the issues are with that policy? Well, decriminalization itself doesn't necessarily go far enough to tackle what we're dealing with in British Columbia right now, which is an unmitigated overdose crisis. Um, So when we think of decriminalization, we're thinking of decriminalizing substance use, um, which, you know, reinforces the stigma um, associated with using drugs. But it's important not to conflate the decriminalization of drugs for personal use with interventions or approaches that tackle incredibly high number of overdose deaths we're dealing with each month in our province. Do you think we've done that then? Because uh, there was a lot of fanfare when the decriminalization policy was announced and uh, the fact that we're talking about Vancouver and BC being a leader in that case. But if it's not coupled with other uh, things such as safe supply or treatment uh, and other pillars, if it doesn't have those other supports, how is it supposed to work? Well, it, 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 yeah, it's, it, it works by removing the um, criminal, um, the criminal aspect to drug use. So that's important because criminalizing people who use drugs discourages them from, um, you know, reaching out for help when they need it for seeking treatment or other supports that um, they may need. And removing the criminal records associated with personal possession can also support people in their, in their hope for recovery from addiction. But um, right now in British Columbia, we're dealing with a toxic drug supply that's, um, you know, filled with uh, adulterants like xylazine, benzodiazepines, really unpredictable fentanyl concentrations. And that's what's driving the overdose crisis. So the criminal aspect of it is really not at the personal um, possession and personal consumption level. It's at the higher organized crime level that's really responsible for this incredibly unpredictable supply. Right. So decriminalizing it. uh, And if the goal there is to take the stigma away, to take that part out. But like you're saying, if it's not looking at a safer supply or if it is still the drugs on the streets that are killing people, then it doesn't make a lot of difference, does it? That uh, sure, you don't have to fear criminal prosecution, but you could still take something that you don't know what's in it completely. And that could lead to an overdose. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's driving the overdose crisis. So decriminalization on its face does nothing to address the toxic drug supply that we're dealing with. The policy must also come with, um, you know, further policy changes that create a safe regulated drug supply for people. Um, British Columbia should be investing in treatment and recovery options for people and and expanded harm reduction services, particularly in, in rural and remote communities in the province.
What do you think as well of uh, what we've been hearing about, and this has happened, I think, since decriminalization and what we've seen kind of trending or patterns throughout the pandemic in that people are seeking out stronger drugs. They're seeking out uh, more potent fentanyl or the the, the increased, um, the kind of uh, higher drugs that would have more impact. Maybe if somebody, uh, and we're hearing this as well, people on safe supply in some cases could potentially be selling that to, to go and get something that is stronger. Again, how does that kind of play into under that umbrella of decriminalization? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that it plays into the umbrella of decriminalization. I think we're conflating two things. But the the potent drug supply has existed, you know, since before the COVID pandemic, before decriminalization came into play. The, the drug supply is a dynamic um, supply. We've seen um, through my research that fentanyl concentrations in the supply fluctuate. They go up and down over time. And when the COVID-19 pandemic hit and, um, you know, there were social distancing measures and um, border control measures came into play. We saw a huge supply shock to the system that sent the drug supply into a little bit of a tailspin. Um, Drugs became even more unpredictable. Fentanyl concentrations got thrown way um, out of whack from what they had been dealing with for certain years. So in that sense, the drug supply has become more potent and more toxic. So the problem is people who rely on the unregulated drug supply have I've learned to deal with that and um, people's tolerances have gone up and a lot of the safe supply options that are available, you know, hydromorph- hydromorphone prescriptions, they just don't offer the, the potency and enough for people to, you know, feel well when their withdrawal hits. And so, you know, diversion is one of the ways that people are dealing with that is by um, selling what they're able to receive from the prescription and then I'm reverting back to the unregulated drug supply to feel well again. And I don't think that comes as a huge surprise to anyone when it, when it's explained that way and you look at the motivation on why somebody would do that. A huge difference in response when we look at what's happening in BC and even earlier this week with that talk of expanding safe supply and, and adding to the move to decriminalize. If we look to our neighbours in Alberta going down the path of forced treatment, which is always controversial, you mentioned, though, some of the other things that are needed to add to to decriminalization to help with uh, trying to stop uh, this uh, continued crisis where we're seeing six people die every day. Uh, what else do you think does the, the research tell us that we should be doing? Well, the research tells us that we shouldn't be um, forcing people into treatment because treatment really only works if somebody wants it, right? And what we're what is a big concern for us is that someone who is maybe, you know, put into a jail cell or put into a treatment facility Um, where they're not able to access any drugs at all, their tolerance is going to go way down. And then as soon as they get out um, or are released back uh, into public life and their tolerance has dropped and they access the unregulated drug supply again, which hasn't changed, um, they're not going to realize that they're not going to be able to handle what they could before they um, went into treatment. And then especially if they are trying to hide the fact that they're using and they use alone, that can lead to really you know, dire consequences, fatal consequences for someone. And that's something we see and hear anecdotally all the time. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have known someone um, or, you know, families and friends who've, who've lost someone that way, where they, they receive treatment and then they get released or they go back to uh, public life and they don't realize that their tolerance is not what it used to be and they, and they end up unfortunately dying. 
So is there anything else you think or that you've been researching and look at that we could be doing? Is it that safe supply is expanded and people at least then stay alive and have a chance at going to treatment when they want to? Or is there anything else that we're kind of missing? You know, that's exactly the point of safe supply. Safe supply is meant to provide people an alternative to the toxic, unregulated drug supply in order to um, stay alive. And then whenever someone is ready to seek treatment, they're more, it's, it's there for them. And that's why that we need to be investing in treatment and recovery options um, that are affordable uh, in, in the province. And so whenever someone is ready, they can seek treatment that way. Um, and the other thing about safe supply is it's stabilizing for people's life. And, you know, you're able to um, get back onto a, a schedule that works for you. You can hold employment. So it, it, there's a lot of benefits of safe supply on top of just staying alive and, and avoiding going to treatment. It, it's a very stabilizing factor for people. And, and different methods of safe supply work for different people. So it's really important to have options, whether that's injectable safe supply that's overseen by a nurse in a clinic or options that you can take home, you know, like pills that uh, work for you and you can um, work them into your day, whatever is best. All right. Samuel Tobias, thanks so much for your time, for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Many questions remain after the shocking news that Paul Bernardo was quietly transferred to a medium security prison in Quebec. And we've been hearing from the lawyer for the from for the families of his victims trying to get more answers about why this move was made. We've also been hearing from the federal public safety minister demanding that more information be released. Chris Selly is joining us now, a columnist for The National Post. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. I know you've written extensively about this and your, your latest piece mentioning that we're hearing from the public safety minister uh, wanting to get more information from the Correctional Service of Canada. What's your take on how things have unfolded and the reactions since this news first broke? Well, I think you're right to focus on the question of information. I mean, we, we just we, people don't know what to think. And if we're going to have an independent uh, correctional service, which I think in principle is a good idea. We don't want ministers, you know, moving around prisoners because it's politically advantageous. We just need more information. It shouldn't be up to journalists. I mean, I see in my newspaper today, we have a piece explaining, you know, what minimum security means. But it really shouldn't be up to the media. I mean, if, 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 so I, I think that the takes have been completely understandable the fury, both political and, and, you know, from victims and their advocates is completely understandable. I don't understand why. Uh, I don't understand if we're going to have this system. I, I think that this is a good opportunity to, to tweak it in a big way towards giving people more information and, and maybe not blindsiding the minister every time this happens. You know, maybe, maybe you, get, you at least get the briefing before uh, so it, it doesn't have to look like no one's in charge. Right. And I mean, they had to know whoever was making this decision had to know that the news would get out because the families were told through their lawyer. Uh, they also had to know it was going to be controversial. People were going to be angry that this person who is a dangerous offender was transferred to, to medium security. But we've heard that one of the the justifications for this is that they can't violate the privacy rights of Paul Bernardo, which I think angers people even a little bit more. Sure, there's privacy rights, but what about the people that want to know why this is happening? Well, that's right. I mean, 
you know, when you go to prison, you forfeit quite a few of your, of your rights, notably the right to, you know, walk around on the street as a free person. I think it's entirely reasonable that you also forfeit, um, certainly in the case of horrendous crimes that shock entire countries, the entire country, it, it's reasonable that you forfeit uh, the right to privacy. It's, just, you know, the basic thing. We don't need medical records or anything. We just need to have some kind of assessment, uh, some kind of explanation as to what's changed. Uh, after all, this is a quite a long time for him to be in a maximum security prison by the standards of the system. So why was he in there so long? What, what changed recently? You know, these are all things that um, you know, privacy, uh, again, I, I, just, I just think maybe it changed. Maybe you need a change in the law or something. But it, Paul Bernardo forfeited his right to privacy on basic facts about his um, suitability uh, for different kinds of prisons. Right. And even uh, when we look at, at what he's he's been subject to in his time, like you said, he's been in maximum security for a lengthy period of time. Uh, the past two parole board hearings, I think uh, the most recent 2021, there was also one in 2018. I mean, the information from those hearings is public, which is, I think, why it becomes even more frustrating that the public isn't being told, that, like you said, not all of the details, just the reason why was this change made? Uh, that's exactly right. The, the, and the details we do have from those two uh, parole hearings were not particularly impressive. Um, you know, it, it, not not that I think he had any chance of really getting out. Um, but from most of the news reports I read, it did not sound like uh, the observers on the parole board and, and, and in the gallery felt that this was a changed person or someone who really understood what they'd done and had taken um, taking account of, or, you know, who, who felt any remorse for it. Now, maybe that doesn't impact minimum versus, or uh, sorry, medium versus maximum security. But again, tell us, explain it to us. Um, you know, CSC, this is Correctional Service Canada is the outfit that moved Taylor and McClintic not so long ago to an Indigenous healing lodge. This is a this young woman who killed an eight-year-old Tory Stafford in, 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 Ontario, in Ontario in 2009. I mean, that was an absolutely insane thing to do, much crazier than this. Um, and, and that was eventually, and that was reversed, uh, after the minister ordered a quote unquote review. Uh, why should we trust, like, you know, if that's what they're capable of, trust us becomes even more untenable a position. Right. And and you mentioned, too, that maybe this points to there needs to be a change in the law, a change in the policy. Uh, do you think this one's high profile enough, especially given the, the strong words, I suppose, we've been hearing from Marco Mendicino that this finally does get looked at? I, I mean, I think the problem is that it's such a unique case. Like, one way or the other, this is going to die down, right? I suspect he'll be sent back to, to Millhaven or to another maximum security prison, Um uh, my guess is that when the public safety minister orders a review like this, Correctional Service Canada is probably 100% of the time going to uh, side with the minister, just as, as a matter of political um, self-preservation. So I, I, I think it'll probably come off the boil, right? Like he'll either he'll either go to the uh, medium security prison, <laughs> hopefully not escape or do anything crazy in there, and we'll forget about it. Um, and thankfully, there aren't that many Paul Bernardos. Uh, they think bad cases or tough cases make bad law, but you know, it's also if if the, if the system can't be seen to be coping transparently and efficiently and 
defensively with someone like Paul Bernardo, then how can people trust it to deal with other criminals? You know, so I, I hope so. I hope it causes a um, a shift, but I think it might actually be other cases that lead to it more than Bernardo because it's such a he's such an outlier and and, and uh, so unique in Canada's criminal history. Right, uh, which uh, is a good thing, I suppose yeah. uh, you could say. Um, have we gotten any explanation, though, as far as I, I know I heard somebody say, well, the, the chances of escaping from medium are not greater than that of maximum, which I also don't think really gives people peace of mind. But have we gotten a clear picture of what would be different as far as his incarceration? There seems to be more, uh, based on a report than I suppose today by my colleague Joseph Green, uh, there, there's more freedom within within the wall, like the walls are just as secure, but there's more freedom and sort of independence and self-reliance for the prisoners within it. That's the basic, uh, that's the basic idea of it. Um, So I guess, I guess it's possible. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not like, um, it's not one of those sudden minimum security prison camps. Like you can go online and look at photos, you know, and there's barbed wire and there's guard towers there's everything you'd want <laughs> between you and paul bernardo um so yeah i don't know maybe that's plausible but again you know the csc put out this press release that, that told us all about uh told us all about the similarities between maximum and, and medium security but didn't give us anything about what's different because they didn't want to tell us what's different because they didn't think that that was you know that wouldn't help their case well again you know you have to treat people like like grown-ups if, if you want to be uh entrusted uh, with this kind of responsibility. All right. Chris Selly, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks so much for having me join today. Well, we've been talking a lot about wildfires. The mayor of Port Alberni joined us earlier talking about a fire that has blocked the highway to that community. I know this is something you have really studied, looking back even as far as the Elephant Hill fire in BC in 2017. What are your thoughts when we look at what's happening? Here we are, early June, and what's happening with wildfires already? It's really scary already where above the long-term average in terms of the area that's been burned, there's a number of fire of note, fires of notes burning around the province, of fires that are um, directly affecting communities and critical infrastructure. And we still have these hot and dry conditions that have lagged from the fall. So it's looking to be another potentially big wildfire season here in B.C., And when you look back at other fires and things that we have learned from those fires, we often talk about forest management. Are we doing enough to make it so we're not as susceptible to these fires? What are your thoughts on how we are kind of preparing for them? So a lot of my research, like you said, is focused on some of the big fires from 2017. We're actually looking at uh, what happens after the fire as well in terms of forest management and recovery And there's definitely a lot that we can be doing at all different scales in terms of proactive management, whether that's at the individual or household uh, scale, fire smiting our properties, also community resilience planning. And then, of course, looking at how forests are managed, particularly under climate change. You know, are we planting diverse species? Are we addressing, you know, the last century where we've actually taken fire out of these ecosystems and allowed that flammable, flammable vegetation and that fuel to build up? So we need to be looking at addressing risk at all of these different scales. And it almost seems counterintuitive when you think about controlled burns or doing things like that to prevent forest fires. But how important is that? 
it's really important. And what's more important is that it's done in the right way, in the right ecosystems, under the right conditions. So it's not a blanket, let's just burn all of the forests, of course. It's about trying to understand how would these forests have burned either naturally with wildfire ignitions or particularly uh, with indigenous cultural burning. So that active, intentional application of fire to the land how are our forests adapted to these different types of fires? And how can we start to reintroduce that now? Are we spending enough time doing that, learning from Indigenous practices and what has been done in the past? I think there is increasing recognition within wildfire agencies, um, research and in the broader public of the role of Indigenous peoples in addressing wildfire risk. Um, my research really showed that uh, Indigenous peoples, I worked with the Swatman Nation communities, really played a leadership role when fires affected their territories. And that's everything from advising agencies coming in on the best access routes or availability of water sources, guiding people through the maze of forest service roads, showing uh, fire agency staff how fire works within their particular valley or territory, and then obviously just being those guardians or territorial patrol out on the land and actually being the first responders in many cases to fires that start in their territory. And even looking back, and I know uh, your study has looked a lot again at those fires in 2017, but if we look back even a couple of years and uh, the destruction of the entire town of Lytton, there certainly has been a lot of talk about uh, clearing the brush from railways uh, to reduce uh, the fire hazards of sparks coming from trains, even things like that, that seem like they would be obvious, but clearly we're not doing enough of that, or it seems like we're not. Yeah, and I think you could even expand that to, again, thinking about the province um, more broadly. There has been a lot more attention and investment to fuel treatment, so reducing that flammable vegetation in forests around communities in what we term the wildland-urban interface. But we need to be looking more broadly um, throughout the forests and integrating that into forest management practices. So, again, addressing the risk right near communities, but then also scaling that up uh, much more widely. Is it becoming more of a challenge as well, do you think, because we're seeing communities expand and we're seeing more human uh, development and more human living in areas that maybe in the past would have been more remote? I think we're seeing that in the statistics for the fires here in BC already. About 60% of the fires that have occurred uh, this season so far have been human caused whether that's unintentionally throwing a cigarette butt out the window or a campfire that's got out of control. So we're seeing a lot more people not only living in these forested areas, but recreating in these forested areas. Uh, So we need to be really vigilant. And again, it's also thinking about how do we strategically plan our cities and our communities? How do we build with um, more fire-resistant materials? And maybe there are some areas that we shouldn't be building into. You mentioned as well the vegetation or, or what we're planting and when we're reforesting, making sure that it's it's different types of species that are regrowing. How important is that looking specifically at species? I mean, I, I remember talking about uh, the pine beetle wood that was very flammable, the dead wood. But how important is it as, as we regrow and replant those areas, we are specifically looking at how it's going to grow in terms of fire risk? It's really critical, particularly under climate change and thinking about what species are going to be adapted to the conditions that we're starting to see. 
And then also potentially using some of these fires as an opportunity to reset. Perhaps fires were burning through areas that had been you know, dramatically disturbed through harvesting, through um, planting with single species, through um, pine beetle, like you said. Is this an opportunity to regenerate and restore with a more diverse mix of species? The communities I work with are really focusing on deciduous plants and then also shrubs and berry bushes that are important for wildlife, important for their communities, um, and that can potentially slow the, um, the spread of fire through these areas. And and do you think that uh, given, again, that, that it is early on in the season and we're dealing with these fires, not only uh, the one that's blocking the road to Port Alberni, but others in the province, uh, is it a learning opportunity and, and one that should also be a bit of a wake-up call? It's interesting, that term wake-up call. You know, we say that every year when we have, you know, new statistics broken, new record area burns. But 2003 was a wake-up call in BC, and then 2017 was talked about as another wake-up call. So I think we've been having these wake-up calls for a very long time, and we're really past the time, we're really at that point in time where we need to be acting on this. We've learnt a lot from these past fire seasons, and there's really no excuse not to be changing our approaches to management, to how we manage and respond to fire, and then also how we proactively prepare as communities. All right. It's uh, very good information. Sarah Dixon-Hoyle, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again, Joe. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.